Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Napa is known for its vineyards, great wine, and steady competition. How do you create one of the most successful wine labels? By creating a sturdy foundation and adapting to more ways of harvesting, all while deeply rooted in tradition and old school grit and determination. Kathy Corson is a winemaker and founding partner of Corson Winery. She's one of the few females to run a wine label and will tell us more about creating brand consistency, even through uncertain times and how to stand above the competition. Kathy, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. It's great to be here. So would you call would you call yourself a, a vineyard or would you call yourself a farm business? Because it's a little bit of both, isn't it? We are a small family family farm. It doesn't matter how you slice and dice it. We are a small yeah. family farm at Foundation. Can I ask you how many acres you're running there? I mean, because back in South Dakota, we you know that's how we measure it's by how many acres you have and nineteen. We own nineteen acres of vineyard, and that's yeah. up from zero when I founded the business. So and, and so we and you were the founder. Wow. And we sourced maybe another 15 acres. It's amazing that that small amount, I mean, cause we, you know, we would consider 15 acres or 19 acres in South Dakota as kind of an acreage. That's what we'd call it. You're calling it a full farm and, and it's producing a lot of great wine. How did you decide to get into the wine business? It was a long time ago. I was 19 years old. I was a sophomore studying biology at Pomona College when on a complete whim, I took a wine appreciation class. I think in today's world, they would not have let me take that class as a 19-year-old. 19, yeah. Wine grabbed me by the neck and ran with me. I loved it for all the usual reasons. It's delicious and it... You share it with friends and family, it makes food taste better and vice versa. But for me, it was a whole series of living systems that conspired to what is alchemy in the glass, which we we don't really understand it as well as we might want you to think we do. (laughs) It's magic. It's a little magic to it. So, but there there needs to be a little magic. I mean, there's certainly a lot of nature. I I was at a wine tasting event the other day where I learned that the more stress the grape goes under, it's actually the years that you actually have a pretty good uh, yield of wine in terms of the taste and the varietals and so forth. I, I thought that was fascinating to me that you have to have that stress on it to make it so good. Yeah, to 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 a certain extent, yes. And wine is alive on so many levels. It's it's it grows on a plant, and we a living organism turns it from grape juice into wine. We age it in the wood of an oak tree, and we even put another bark of an oak tree in the in the bottle to as a stopper. The cork. So- COVID's wreaked a lot of havoc on every industry. What have been your biggest challenges to date and how have you changed your business to model and adapt to that? Well, first of all, we're extremely lucky in California, we're considered an essential business. So we were able to continue making wine and growing grapes from the very beginning. And I'm so grateful for that. 
both as a business person, but also just it's given me something to do in my soul. So, yeah. um, so that's very lucky. We also had, we're very fortunate that over the years we had developed our direct to consumer business all the way up to 70% of our sales. So that has put us in great stead. We, we are doing more offerings, email offerings to our people on our mailing list. And we, our sales are actually up over last year. Oh, good for you. That's good to hear. Yeah. The, the, the disturbing side is that we sell, when we do go into distribution, we sell mostly to restaurants. And we all know that the restaurant business is in very, very tough shape. And we're not yeah. quite sure how they're going to come through it. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure that, that a lot of them will. I mean, it's going to have to be foods that have been traveling well, as I've uh, had folks on the show and talk about that. And it's changed a lot of different people on that. Have you had to change the way you've done tasting rooms, those kinds of things? I know I have some friends who uh, handwritten wines and, and Jessup Sellers just down the road from you who own those uh, wineries, they've been able to go to a, a virtual tasting. We've been, in fact, we've participated with them and hosted them some virtual tastings for handwritten. Have you done any of that to change your business around a little bit? We're doing a little bit of that and have plans to do more. Um, but mostly we've taken advantage of the, the years of developing a mailing list and a, and a club that's very active. Yeah. And we found that um, they've stepped up and our, like I said, our sales are actually up. Um, but it's been, it's been able to build that loyal fan base that's been able to sustain you, right? And that, what were the key things that you did, you know, leading up to now where it's not an issue for you? It's because you've been able to do that. Well, for 34 years, we've been taking care of people. And then when after 1999, when we built the winery, we actually had a home. We've, we've developed a, a very um, successful visitation. Um, yeah. We we host people, and that tends to make people very loyal. Now, you said you got into the business when you were very young, right after uh, I assume right after college. And and how, do you have other family members working with you in the business? Well, my husband, we, we, we were married five years after I founded the business and he stood a little too close to a very needy little business. And then there's this audible sucking sound. And so he was <laughs> sucked right into it. That was 27 years ago. And uh, so he's, it was interesting to hear Michael and Bonnie talk about working with your husband because he has very different strengths. He's, he's a designer. He designed the winery. He, he's the IT department. He's keeps everything running. Um, he's loading the press as we speak. Um, and we've been very good about usually keeping our responsibilities separate. So, and then both daughters who are in their early to mid twenties at the moment, were in New York city, getting their life going when COVID hit, they came back in March and they're both on the sorting table right now. <laughs> As so, we so, they're, 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 and they've been that, that huge sucking sound again that you just there suck them is. right back in. Well, it keeps, yeah, well, it keeps them busy. It's part of life. It's what you have to do when you work for a family farm. That's what you do. You Everybody pitches in. And quite frankly, when when something happens to us, they're going to it's they're going to have to worry about this place, whether they like it or not. And so and yeah, totally, without question, about it, the better. C-Suite Radio. 
Man, now I want to get into a little bit about um, the female-led business, especially female-led wine labels. As you look around Napa, you look around California wines, it's most family wineries, um, and let's just say family farms as well. Um, being from the Midwest, I know this for a fact. They're not headed by women, by and large. They're usually headed by the male of the family. In this case, we've got the female-led. What's the... How, how how have you been remain resilient and true to who you are in the industry where it doesn't see many women at the top? I think a couple of things. One, I've always been very grateful that the title winemaker connotes no gender. Mm. And I grew up as the eldest of four daughters. And I was always my father's only son. And so... Growing up and then all the way through college, I didn't know I was a second-class citizen. So I, can't, I got out of school, and my major professor, as I left the University of California, Davis, with my master's degree in winemaking, sat me down, and I think he meant well, but he sat me down to tell me that I would never be able to work in the Napa Valley. I would never be able to be the winemaker in the Napa Valley. And there was something already inside of me. There's this little voice on my shoulder that said, I didn't say anything out loud, but it said, watch me. So I don't know where that came from, but you, I've always you been think pretty, it's, I'm pretty stubborn. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, I think you have to be to run any business, period, man or woman. I think that's important. But And I, I love that Cindy Tushik actually made a comment here in the chat, says, never tell a woman she can't. Was that, was that part of it? Did that give you part of your drive to say, well, you told me I can't, so therefore watch this, sister, you know? Didn't hurt. <laughs> Didn't hurt. Do you, do you ever feel like the, did you ever feel like the, the deck was stacked against you? Sure. And it was. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I just, just, I always chose to just put my head down and do the very best I could. And, and, I, and I'm still doing that. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's that it's still that way today? Well, we've worked our way all the way up to in California, 10% of full control winemakers in California are women. Napa Valley's done a little better than that. It's 12 or 13%. So we've got a long way to go, but we've come a long way as well. That's women led, but I would imagine there's co-led as well, meaning family, family based businesses that are running it that are both shared by the man and woman. Well, that metric is actually the, they looked at all the full control winemakers mm. and 10% of them are women. It doesn't mean they own the business. It means they're in charge of the production. Ah, I get it. That makes a big sense. So, hey, global warming has been a fact. I mean, we're seeing much more of the fires in, in uh, the Napa area and all over California. How has it affected your business and what changes have you implemented to counter those effects? It's really um climate change more than warming it's mm -hmm. we find that the weather is much more um changeable and in fact in the last 10 years we've had the very coldest season ever recorded in the napa valley that was 2011 and we've had the very hottest season ever recorded that was 2017 so we, we're needing to be very nimble especially out in the vineyard lots of things from canopy management to protect the the grapes from the sun and the heat, to people are are experimenting with shade cloth out there. They're thinking about adjusting the varieties that grow where. 
um, it's all a fairly new, new um, challenge for us. So we're all we're we're looking at it from every angle. Well, that area has always been kind of the hot area in terms, not hot area in terms of temperature, but I'm talking about in terms of the wine business itself, the epicenter for most wine as we think of it in, in North America is there. But now you're starting to see it branch out Long Island, New York, the Finger Lakes, just about every single state in some way, shape or form has uh, wineries. Are you Have you ever thought about expanding or moving? No, I make I'm I make Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, and it, it takes a lot of heat to get Cabernet Sauvignon ripe, and that's one of the secrets of the Napa Valley is that it's hot enough to reliably get Cabernet ripe every year. There are a lot of hot places in the world, but there are very few that have the combination of the heat we need to get them ripe, but also the cold nights. We get the fog every single night during the ripening season. We have this huge diurnal shift, and it's really to this very day is, I believe, one of the best places in the world to grow Cabernet Sauvignon specifically. So well, Michael and Bonnie talked a little bit when we talked to them about Barefoot, about the consistency of wine. And you've been making wine for over 20 years using the same kinds of techniques. How have you been able to keep the consistency through all the changes that have been beyond, you know, your control or our control? How do you do that? Well, you have to be nimble. Every year, Mother Nature throws you something new. It's happened again this year, just when I thought I'd seen everything. So it's, it's basically sourcing the best grapes from the best dirt possible. I can't make the wine any better than the grapes that come into the, in the door. So it's a matter of sourcing them from the right place. And then it's, it's taking care of them. It's, it's managing the canopy properly. And that allows you to optimize what Mother Nature sends you every year. And then in the winery, you have to deal with what Mother Nature sent you. If I did the same thing every year, my wines wouldn't be consistent. So it's really just remaining nimble. And your vineyards have been focused around being farmed sustainably, uh, you know, using organic farming techniques to nurture the soil, the crops. Uh, have you seen more vineyards becoming more sustainable or is there a resistance, uh, a resistance to that in terms of farming and harvesting? I would say the entire Napa Valley has become largely sustainable. They're not all certified organic, but they're all moving in a sustainable direction. So it's, that's been very grat gratifying. What do you see as the biggest trends that you're going to see moving forward in the future for your business? Well, you know, we're farmers and I, frankly, to make world-class wine, I hope we're still farmers. So I'm not looking for a lot of changes. I'm looking for us to get better and better at growing grapes. And if do we you, do that, we're going to make better and better wine. But do you think you're, what do you think about yourself as a, as a marketer? Don't you think you have to have a marketing? I mean, you're farming, but you have to, in order to be, you know, you know, to be different than all the other brands that are out there. Don't you have to be a little bit on the marketing side? Well, I've got to say, I never got that memo. I, I didn't study <laughs> business. And now I've studied business and, you know, I've uh, grassroots, but um, my, we were talking about values. I, I believe the only thing we have to sell is our integrity. Any of us, I don't care what we do. And my goal has always been to make some of the best wine in the world. And it took, it took Michael and, and Bunny 19 years to 
to feel successful. For me, it was a quarter century. It was 25 years. So um, it was really just a matter of, of being passionate about what I do and being nimble because nothing has remained the same. They were talking about um, selling wine through the three-tier system. And if any of us were doing the same thing we were doing selling wine even five years ago, we wouldn't be successful. It's been a constantly evolving um, world. So it's really just paying attention and not giving up and, and just, and not being afraid to try new things. How do you, how do you learn new? I mean, when you've been at it, you know, Kathy, I, I, I'm not going to get to your age or my age, but when we've been at it, as long as we've been at it, uh, how do you, how do you, how do you learn those new tricks? I always say you just keep throwing spaghetti at the wall until something sticks. Yeah. I'm a real believer in cooking spaghetti that way myself and trying and trying and trying. What's been the biggest failure you've ever had? Well, I don't know. Again, it's the business has been so cyclic because we're, we're so tied to the economy. We're a luxury good. Um, I would say not being ready for downturns. For instance, the Great Recession almost sunk us, Mm. almost sank us. And this time around, and we're going through another very similar time right now, we're a lot readier for it. And Mm -hmm. I've always, I said it out loud back after we got through that Great Recession that I wanted to be sure I fixed the roof while the sun was shining. And I think we did. What was the, and, and what was the biggest, biggest positive that came out of that 2008 recession? I think we just had to, the, the internet world was happening at the same time and we had to get good at that. I think mm. we had to, we had to run this business like a railroad. Instead of when I got out of school and early in my winemaking days, girl just wanted to make wine and I'm pretty good at that, but I've had, that's the easiest part of this job. Um, the rest is all the things that Michael and Bonnie were talking about is, uh, and I'm a, one of the smallest wineries in California. They're the biggest one in the world, but it's still exactly the same issues we're dealing with. It was striking to me to, to hear that. Um, there's no difference. Exciting. Yeah. It's there's no, no difference. difference. Yeah. From a business on main street to a business on wall street is just zeros. It's the same thing, same issues, same problems that we have to have every single time. Is there, if you look back over the 25 years that you've gotten to this success and the level that you've done it. And by the way, on failures, I always say, everybody's asked me, what's your biggest failure, Jeff? I said, I don't know. I haven't done it yet meaning there's always going to be one, right? There's always going to be a next one. Just like I tend to forget most of the failures because they're just steps to getting to where you want to go. What do you think in that 25 years, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned as a family farm and as a, a leader of a business that you would say, wow, that was one of the best learnings I've ever had. And I want to keep that to the forefront. What do you think that would be? It just all goes back to integrity. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a label, a house needs to stand for something. And if it does, it'll have ups and downs, but it'll come through the other side. Yeah. 
A great question from uh, one of our members, Steve Zosansky, who asked the question. He said, regarding your comment around fixing the roof while the sun shines, a great, great, uh, it's going to be a good meme, by the way, everybody right there. Uh, how do you know and determine what needs to be fixed in advance? You don't. Yeah. You don't. You just have to be paying attention. And so be I, comfortable enough with change to just figure it out. Yeah. And take the steps and put it on the list. Do you have a long list of things? Oh, it's one form of infinity. <laughs> yeah. It's like that. My mine are my honeydew list around the house. But even here in the business, I got my I must get done list, and it keeps getting bigger and never. I think I can work it down, but the second I work it down, a new one springs up the next day, so it never gets done. Never gets done, which never is fantastic. Yep. Hey, let's turn it back over to our team, Kathy. I'd like to be able to go out to some of the folks. We've got some good questions. I see Miguel and Cindy and somebody have asked some questions. I love Mark Bounty said whack-a-mole. That's exactly right. It's whack-a-mole. We do that in the business. She, except she's got gophers. I assume she's got a few gophers out there. I've you got get gophers. Out. I've got fruit flies. I've got... <laughs> You name it. I've got starlings. <laughs> you just, as long as you don't have fruit bats, I think that's the only thing you guys probably don't have out there. So let me turn it over to Tricia and Greg. Kathy, thanks so much for being a part of All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett and being a part of our digital discussion here on C-Suite Radio and C-Suite Network as we do this live cast on LinkedIn and Facebook. I'll turn it back over to Trisha and Greg. C-Suite Radio. Greg, okay, ladies first in this case. So, <laughs> Kathy, that was, again, just a phenomenal conversation. We have so many great questions. I have so many that I'm thinking of myself, but I'm going to start with just uh, something simple. Cindy Tochik uh, says, uh, and Cindy's one of our hero leaders, our, our faculty members uh, across C-suite. Um, she says, what are your thoughts on the quality of screw tops versus corks? And, and you know, we can't help ourselves. This is, this is you know, a, a very important question. And for those of us that know nothing, I'll talk for myself, know very little about wine. I take a very traditional approach. Um, everything I do is very traditional. And so I use a, a cork closure, but my wine is very long lived. I don't know how long. I used to say 20 or 30 years. Now I know it's the earliest wines are just sailing right past 30 years. So I don't know how long lived they are. Um, we have a long, long history of cork of wines aging on cork. And so we understand that. So given that that's one of my foundations is to make wines that have a long, interesting life, I can't, I don't feel like I can use alternative closures, but lots of people are may, are putting even very high-end wines under screw cap and other alternative closures. Um, we're just learning about them. And in a way, corks are a finite resource. They grow mostly in Portugal and Spain and a little bit in Algeria. And to the extent that wines that aren't made to age for a long time can use an alternative closure, we're, we're making the corks last longer. So now there's nothing wrong with them. I don't have a lot of personal experience with screw cap or other, or other closures. So I have a question. So uh, recently, sadly, we lost uh, the great pitcher, Tom Seaver, who was a well-known winemaker as well. And there's been a, a lot of other folks who've gone from careers as quarterbacks or entertainers, and they bought vineyards. What is your view as someone who says, look, this is farming at its core. When you see a celebrity 
think that they can just come in and buy a winery just so they can have their name on the bottle, on the brand? Well, as long as they become farmers, it's, it's okay. You know, and I, and I think they're examples of, of both, you know. Um, that sort of celebrity sales, that'll often um, take them for a while. But this is a very, very tough business. And most people that get into the wine business for the wrong reason don't wind up staying here very long. I love, I love Mark Boundy said the way to make a small fortune in the wine business is to start with a large fortune. <laughs> I think um, Brad Pitt just came out with a, a rosé champagne. Um, so I guess he'll discover. It looks, it looks like a beautiful property, though. Um, on the other hand, I started with $200 in my pocket in 1975. <laughs> my dad stuffed $200 in my pocket as I drove out the driveway on my way to the Napa Valley right out of college. So that, that was my big, my small fortune. <laughs> and how did, you, how did you hire your first employee? And this is a question I wanted to ask uh, Michael and Bonnie before is, look, when you're entrepreneurs, it's very hard to you know, all of a sudden say, you know, look, I, I've been doing this for a few years. I need a vacation. And it's very hard for, for someone, especially on a farm, because things can go wrong so quickly. Jeffrey and I were just speaking earlier about he almost had his soybeans go up in flames because uh, of, some, of some weather issues and they, they were having out there. So when you hired your, your first employee or you went on that first vacation, just talk about the trust issue of turning things over. Well, for a very long time, I didn't have any employees uh, because I did not own vineyards. I did not own a winery. It was all done with smoke and mirrors. Uh, but there came a point once I started selling wine that I need, my first employee was an office manager. I simply could not keep up with the, just the um, dailiness of the office. I was, at the time, I was still making the wine at Chapelet, which is a 30,000 case winery, and making my wine on the side and selling it on the side. So that was my first employee. And it really wasn't until we built the winery in 1999, many years later, that we needed more staff. We have hospitality staff. I have two people that split their time between the vineyard and the winery, but that's how small we are. That's it. Did you go into debt when you built the winery? So for example, you said you started with $200. I imagine that you were you were pretty efficient with your finances and I don't know how much debt you went into, but when you build a winery, you have to go to the bank. So can you talk about going from, all right, bootstrapping it, keeping it nice and tight. Then all of a sudden you, in order to take that next jump to the next level, you're going to have a partner in, in a bank. We were 12 years in to this project when we finally built the winery and needed a loan. And by then we were a mature business. We were making, we were selling what we were making and we were debt free. And that was very, but that was after, after all those years of no employees, um, I, ca I can't afford other professionals, at least historically. So we did everything, literally everything. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we did a phenomenal uh, conversation on the gender parity gap. Uh, it was the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the right uh, for women to vote, Kathy. And I just can't help thinking about what it must have been like for you to be one of the first women-led businesses and, and what that all looked like. And, and it's so interesting when you get uh, executive women business owners, entrepreneurs that are women uh, led, 
when you look at the stories, and it doesn't matter, rock stars to <laughs> uh, any other business, uh, first women, it, there are some real significant challenges. And yet in the wine business, you have tastings which are blind. So I'm, I'm just curious how all of that played out for you and what that looked like in terms of your experience in building your business and gaining credibility and legitimacy and, and the appreciation for your wines. Being a woman was definitely a, a double-edged sword. Uh, there were challenges for sure, but there were so few of us that for better or worse, I think we stuck out like sore thumbs. And so whatever we did was noticed. So for again, for better or worse. So. I, th I think it's gone both ways. Quick question, if you don't mind, about pricing. Because when you're introducing a new wine to the market or a new product, and this is broad, this is for everyone who's on the call, you know, you can just, uh, you can kill a product if you price it wrong right off the bat. So can you just talk about pricing and, and how important it is and, and how you do your market research to know that you're not above the market or too far below it? I think you have to have a good sense of the world of wine, all the wines of the world. I love wine. I make Cabernet because I'm in the Napa Valley, but I taste and drink wildly and I love the wines of the world. And I think selling wine has become very international. Even in the United States, we're competing with European wines. We always have. So I think you have to have a really good sense of where you sit in the world of wine. And, um, you very do you hit a price point? I mean, do you say, all right, look, we're coming out with something. I think this is going to be, you know, a $29.99 bottle as opposed to a $19.99 bottle. So how does the pricing evolve? Because you may all of a sudden have a batch. You're like, you know something? This may be a $39 bottle. Well, our project, this wine I make was fully formed in my head before I started making it. And I, I had a really good sense of where it sat in the world of wine. And so looking at the, the wines of the world that I've considered to be my peers would be, say, second growth Bordeaux wines. It might be the Reservas of Tuscany. Um, so we had a sense of where we, were, where we were trying to go. And the Napa Valley has a long, long history of making great Cabernet-based wines. Back in the late 19th century, it was winning expositions in Europe with Cabernet-based wines. So there's a long, I knew what this, what these vineyards would do. And I knew right where I was pointing it. And I'd made wine for other people for decades by the time I started to do this. So I don't know, it's just a sense. And, and I was fortunate enough to, to hit that mark. And then we've always chosen to be priced a little under our peers. Always. It, I, my wine is not inexpensive, but I can look anybody in the eye and say it's a good value. It's fantastic, Kathy. Uh, Mike, uh, Miguel Gomez has a question um, and is so grateful for this conversation, as we all are. He says uh, he'd love to go back to goals and how do you set the goals for your business and for your life and, and, and how you build those together? My goal from the very beginning was to make a Cabernet Sauvignon that was both powerful and elegant. Powerful Cabernet is going to be powerful no matter what you do, how you grow it, how you make it. Um, I wanted it to be um, long-lived. I wanted to enjoy a long, interesting life. I wanted it to grace the table. In other words, be built to complement food and vice versa. 
Um, I wanted it to speak of place. That's one of the most amazing things about wine is it can speak of both time and place. And then it goes forward into time, still speaking of time and place. It's, it's amazing. So those were my goals was to make some of the best Cabernet in the world that fit that model. And like I said, it was fully formed in my mind. I had to go to, I, I made wine for other people in the mountains here in the hills for, for decades. But when it came time to make this wine, I had to go down to what we have always called the Rutherford bench because the grapes are structured to make the wine that I had in my head. How have you evolved from the, I am a farmer, I am a winemaker, more towards the marketing side? Do you feel like, can you talk about your evolution as a marketer and just, and does it still nod? You're like, oh my God, I got to go figure out a marketing strategy. Or is it a challenge that you look forward to? I've learned a lot about it. I can't say I'm terribly good at it. And back coming through the Great Recession, I finally hired somebody that was good at it, frankly. They were only here for four years, but they taught us how to run this place like a, like a railroad. And so it's still, I love to talk about wine. It's easy for me to talk about wine, um, but it's not my, str I'm a quiet person. I'm a winemaker. Um, often those are not the best marketing people. So, do you feel wine should be apolitical? So, when Michael and Bonnie were talking, they said issues count. And then famously, you had Michael Jordan who said, You know something? Republicans, they buy sneakers too. So, he said, I don't want to be involved in politi political issues. So, what's your view about issues in the wine industry and how it will re reflect upon your brand? I try to keep it local and I try to do the right thing right here in my little corner of the world. I try to take care of my employees. Um, I try to be both gender and, and um, ethnicity blind and make my little corner of the world a good place. And I, I think that's the, the most I can do, the best I can do. So you, try and control the, you try and control the issues that you can control and you try and avoid the, the bigger political ones, perhaps? I'm, I wouldn't say avoid it. No one knows how small we are. We only make 3,000 cases of wine. I mean, it's, it couldn't be more polar from barefoot. You know, it's, we're so small that, and there's so few of us that I'm afraid we maybe perhaps don't look up as often as we wish we could. Phenomenal. So I think we have one last question, which is a great way to uh, wrap up our, our questions uh, with you, Kathy, and the time we get to have with you. Um, Cindy Tochik asks, what is your favorite part of the business? I love sampling grapes right now, this time of year, when the sun comes up, trying to figure out when to pick them. That's my very favorite thing in the whole world. What is the window for that? Uh, now you made me curious. Well, well Verasion, the, the grapes start to ripen around the 1st of August. And so they ripen through August. And then we'll generally start picking into September. And so I start sampling the grapes all through August. And then as they get close to ripe, I'll, I will sample them every day. So it's, it's basically during the ripening season.
Phenomenal. Thank you so much, Kathy. You're welcome. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.